Written and read by Oliver Gray. Chapter 5. At North Walls Police Station, Tuesday afternoons were normally quiet. Apart from the motorway guys, who often had traffic accidents on the M3 to deal with, there was little to do apart from catch up on paperwork. Maybe a minor domestic dispute in Highcliffe would need to be sorted out, or a shoplifter would be apprehended in the Brooks shopping centre. So, despite himself, Detective Chief Inspector Robin Bird actually felt a frisson of excitement when he was told that a body had been found. Most likely it would be a homeless alcoholic, but who knows, maybe it could be a juicy murder. In this provincial backwater, murder was more or less unknown. A few years earlier, a lady in Week had been strangled by a spurned lover, and there was still the unsolved murder of a pensioner in Brambridge, but generally, the sort of case normally dealt with by Bird and his team tended to be a lot more mundane. Taking his colleague D.I. Adrian Jackson with him and cursing the clogged-up rush-hour one-way system, Bird had to switch on the siren to carve his way through. Uniform and medics were already on the scene, as Ben had called 999 the second he realised that Corey was dead. Bird called ahead to remind the medics not to move the body in case, just in case, he almost hoped, it was a murder case. Bird and Jackson arrived at the station to find a pretty dismal scene. A cluster of people were gathered round a taped-off area containing a large, scruffy figure on the ground. The refuse bin had been moved out of the way by someone. The congealed ketchup emanated from the back of the body's head, so it was immediately clear that a pathologist would have to be called. Attempting to take charge and ascertain the background, Bird asked for any information anyone might have. Does anyone know who this is? I do. It was a pale-faced, frightened-looking young man, respectably dressed, who replied. Who are you? I'm Ben Walker. I know who this guy is. He's Corey Zander. Is he local? No, not at all. He's American. This seemed unexpectedly exotic. Ben went on to detail who Corey was and the reason for his visit to Winchester. There was a bit of trouble at the show, but I don't know if it's connected. Corey ran off, but maybe he came back here in the night and something happened. It could have been an accident, decided Bird, but for now we'll view it as a suspicious death. We'll wait to see what the pathologist says. Maybe that'll help. In the meantime, Bird and Jackson set about looking at the body as far as they could without disturbing it. Then, making sure no one stepped beyond the tape and contaminated the area, they questioned Andy, the landlord, and his assistant, Sam, both of whom had emerged from the pub and were standing around looking shell-shocked. Neither of them could anything to clarify the picture. The guy had played a gig the night before, and now here he was, dead in the car park. It made little sense. Jackson was speaking to DCI Bird. Well, he looks like he's in his fifties, he's very overweight, and he doesn't look too healthy. I'd guess he probably had a heart attack and hit his head on something as he fell. Maybe that rubbish bin. He called Ben over. Had this guy been drinking? Did he do drugs? As he detailed the possibilities, Ben felt he'd landed in some rock and roll movie that he wished he'd never seen. Well, he had a history of drug misuse, but he quit hard drugs many years ago. He may have had some dope, and he had whiskey on him because I bought it for him. But he was quite sober when I last saw him. He put on a great show. The pathologist who turned up was a lady, Misha Patel. 
All in all, it felt like a scene from Midsummer Murders, as she examined the body in the gathering dusk. The medic stood in the corner with nothing to do. Andy, Sam and Ben had retreated into the pub, and Andy's wife Carol was making tea for everyone. Bird and Jackson looked at their watches and waited to hear what Miss Patel would say. One way, they could ask for the body to be removed, do some paperwork for next of kin, and move on. The other way, they could expect to be embarking on a major investigation. Patel stood up. What do you think? Well, as far as I can tell from a quick examination, the cause of death is a massive blow to the back of the head with a large, rough-edged instrument. Could he have stumbled and hit himself on something? Unlikely. Even if he was very drunk, he would most likely have stumbled forwards, and this bin is made of plastic and hasn't got any rough edges. Besides, how did he end up behind it? Did he crawl there with a gaping hole in his head? Bird nodded. It looks like someone has tried to hide the body. That's what it looks like, yes. So it's looking like murder. Bird was thinking aloud rather than asking. Of course, I can't be specific until after the post-mortem, but my unofficial first impression is that, yes, that is the most likely explanation. Bird and Jackson took charge. Bird called the control room and requested a murder squad to be put in place. Then the entire building, beer garden and car park were sealed off with incident tape. There would be no gig at the station tonight. Andy was horrified. Business was crap enough as it was, without having to close the venue to customers. A baffled-looking indie band from London, arriving in their sprinter van, were turned away with no more explanation than, sorry, this is now a crime scene. This would make a good story for the NME. The medics were put in charge of carefully gathering up the body and transporting it to somewhere where the clothes could be removed and prepared for forensic examination. A team of officers from North Walls, supplemented with a few from Eastleigh, were brought in to conduct a fingertip search of the scene. If there was any evidence, it was going to be there in the car park. The items they turned up were a fascinating collection, though none of obvious relevance. There were thousands of cigarette ends, plus beer bottle caps, broken guitar strings, the remains of a capo, a splintered drumstick, and, oh dear, a used condom, presumably from some punters who couldn't wait to get home and had used the car park instead. In the end, the evidence was in the obvious place. Two officers from the research team, brought in from the Hampshire Police Support HQ in Netley, had been given the unenviable task of sorting through the rubbish bin. Halfway down, amongst the dirty paper plates, the beer cans, the crisp and cigarette packets and the plastic bags, and strangely, a half-full bottle of bourbon, they found the murder weapon. It was a large, battered brick, and it had a very clear bloodstain on one side of it. Happily, the officer who found it was wearing latex gloves, so didn't contaminate it too much as he held it triumphantly aloft. Sir, look at this! Whoever had killed Corey Zander hadn't made much of an effort to hide the weapon. It seemed to have been simply tossed into the bin. Any fingerprints on the lid handle would be interesting, thought Bird, as he ushered everyone away and ordered the whole car park to be taped off as a major crime scene. Andy, the landlord, having been watching through the window, came out to add this contribution. That's the brick we used to prop open the stage door. It's normally just lying around in the car park. It's going to be a straightforward case, thought Bird. No hidden gun, no knife stolen from a kitchen, not even an old-fashioned baseball bat. 
Corey's killer, had quite obviously simply picked up the nearest blunt object and thumped him with it. All they had to do was find someone with motive and opportunity, and that would be that. But who might that someone be? It was pretty obvious. One person was standing right there with blood literally on his hands. It had had to be that young promoter. There was, at the very least, reasonable suspicion. It was true that Ben, in his stunned condition, hadn't even got round to washing. Why should he have? The last thing he would have considered would have been that he could have been a suspect. He spent half the night searching for Corey. He actually sort of liked him. And what conceivable motive might he have had for killing him? Not that he was thinking about any of those things right now. He was just standing around, crushed. Ben Walker, I am arresting you on suspicion of the murder of Corey Zander. The chilling words penetrated Ben's brain through a mist of incomprehension. He'd watched so many TV thrillers that he knew all the stuff about anything you say by heart, never imagining that it could ever apply to him. Two days ago, he'd been a conventional schoolteacher in the process of planning his wedding. Now he was on a murder charge. They decided, as they could hold him for twenty-four hours without charge, to put Ben in a cell overnight and start the investigation proper in the morning. The brick was carefully bagged up and taken, along with all the other debris, to North Walls. Corey's body was in the process of being removed. The crime scene remained sealed off, and a little convoy of police vehicles snaked back round the one-way system, with Ben in the leading van. Everything happening to Ben continued to seem like a crime novel cliché. First the ketchup, then the caution, now the customary, you may make one phone call. Unsurprisingly, Rosie was by turns incredulous, speechless, mortified, and eventually hysterical. How could something like this happen to a family like theirs? Whatever had Ben got himself into? She eventually agreed to contact Robert and Diana, who would surely have access to good lawyers. Before he went home, DCI Bird had an important thought. What about next of kin? Having no clue as to how to contact anyone, he went to the cell where Ben was incarcerated and asked him. Ben said that, according to his researches, Corey had parents in Oklahoma and a daughter in Texas. More than that, he didn't know. He could give Bird the number of Glenn Wallace, the agent, if he could retrieve his confiscated phone for a moment and look it up. This Bird allowed, and probably gave Glenn Wallace the worst phone call of his life. His well-meaning plan of arranging for Corey Zander to tour Europe had crashed to the ground in the most final and spectacular manner imaginable. He promised to try and find a way to contact Corey's family. Glenn had set up the entire tour by email, directly through Corey himself. He started by sending an email to that address, in the hope that Corey's daughter would maybe look at his computer. He rang a couple of friends in Austin, and asked them to try and get hold of a number for Lucy. He also posted a message on Corey's Facebook page, asking anyone who knew Corey or Lucy to contact him urgently. And finally, he put a similar request on his own Twitter feed. After an unsurprisingly uncomfortable and troubled night in the cells, Ben received a cup of tea before being led to an interview room, where DCI Bird and D.S. Jackson awaited him. Robert had engaged a lawyer called Maria Weston to represent him. For the purpose of the tape, Ben was amazed that the police actually did still use audio cassettes. They'd been phased out as an educational tool a decade ago. In a daze, he heard Bird reminding him that he'd already been cautioned and that, in his opinion, 
there was enough evidence for it to be followed through with a charge. He would be appearing in court later in the morning for a preliminary hearing. Ben had enough presence of mind to tell the detectives that he had no comment at the moment, but they would, of course, be denying the charge. At eleven o'clock he was taken to court for one of those brief confirming name and address hearings and remanded in custody. Ben's first priority would be to ask for his lawyer to overturn this, as, even if they believed he had murdered Corey Zander, he surely wasn't a danger to others. In court, he noticed a reporter from the weekly news scribbling away in shorthand. He could already picture the next edition's headline, Local Man on Murder Charge. Lucy Cruz was in the process of helping to set up an exhibition of her photographs at the Yard Dog Gallery on South Congress in Austin when the gallery owner approached her. She'd seen a Facebook public entry scrolling down the side of her screen. If anyone in Austin knows Lucy Cruz, could you ask her to call this number urgently? Lucy used the gallery's phone to call Glenn Wallace, who had posted the message. She knew he was her father's UK agent, so the news had to be something to do with Corey. Hey, Glenn, what's up? Lucy, I have some bad news. It's about your father. Lucy swallowed, but somehow she wasn't altogether surprised to receive a call. He'd had a triple heart bypass the year before, so she feared the worst. He's had a heart attack? No, he's had some kind of accident. We don't really understand what happened. Is he okay? I don't know how to tell you. Apparently he's dead. For a few moments, Lucy couldn't bring herself to speak. She had had her doubts about the wisdom of Corey's European adventure all along, but he'd argued the nothing-ventured-nothing-gained approach. At this stage in his career, what was there to lose? It might even be fun. Lucy had even considered accompanying him as tour manager until they looked at the prices of transatlantic flights. Maybe, if she'd been with him, this accident or whatever it was could have been avoided. She instantly felt guilt for not having been with him. I'll have to come over. I think that would be good. Let me know when you have your flight details and I'll get someone to meet you at the airport. Where is he? He's in a town called Winchester, near London. What kind of accident was it? A crash on the highway? No, he received a head injury, but no one knows how. It was a shattering call for Lucy. She and her father had lived together for over twenty years in a small house at the back of Home Slice Pizza, south of the Colorado River in Austin. In an unofficial capacity, Lucy had effectively been his manager, getting him solo gigs at various venues across Texas and neighbouring states. For the last couple of years, she'd even been involved in driving him around. His driving felony had been a marginal thing, really, just a couple of beers that an audience member had bought him but Texas's draconian traffic laws had meant a lengthy ban. Lucy had been eight when she and Corey made the move to Texas. He'd already had two stabs at the mainstream music industry and correctly assumed that Austin would be an ideal environment to settle down. With a history of drug abuse, Corey was in need of being somewhere where he could be sure of regular work as a solo artist and where his daughter could be brought up in a liberal atmosphere. Surrounded by supportive musicians, he entered a world of jam sessions, studio work and creative conversation, a long way from the conservative world of Oklahoma. Unsurprisingly, Lucy displayed both musical and artistic talent at school, eventually studying fine art at the University of Texas. Her photography and painting, often inspired by her Choctaw heritage, 
could be seen on album covers, in coffee table books, and in galleries throughout the state. Lucy inherited the talents and looks of her parents. She was very beautiful, in an alternative style, wafting round the cultural city in long flowing dresses, every bit the modern-day hippie. Both she and Corey had occasional relationships, but the father-daughter bond was strong, which explained why they continued to live together. Lucy looked out for her dad. His history meant that he could be volatile, and his health needed keeping an eye on. Apart from his daily marijuana, he had completely given up using any drugs, and alcohol was restricted to the occasional margarita or the odd Lone Star beer. It was rare for him to have an outburst of rage, but it happened if he was severely provoked. Lucy blamed the drug abuse of his youth for messing with his brain, and like many offspring of alcoholic or drug-addicted parents, she comprehensively rejected both these vices. Lucy was also a vegetarian and a keep-fit enthusiast, jogging daily in Zilka Park and regularly doing yoga and pilates. In this, she was also rejecting her father's lifestyle. His heart attack had taken place two years before, packing up after a gig in San Antonio. He'd been rushed to hospital and saved, after a frantic search of a shoebox at the bottom of his bedroom wardrobe by Lucy, had revealed enough cash to assure the hospital he could play for the operation. He wasn't insured, of course. He had a couple of stents inserted and proceeded to carry on with exactly his old lifestyle. He'd love to go to IHOP for breakfast, a huge stack of pancakes with bacon. Lunch would be a short walk to the pizza joint, and evenings would often entail a trip to Wendy's for a burger with plenty of salt. Lucy tried and tried to reform his lifestyle, but to no avail. His youth in the Lancelot chain with its daily freebies was to blame. Of that, Lucy was sure. Sport was out of the question. Corey's routine would be to walk to his pickup, drive to the gig, sit on a stool as he played, and drive home again. That's why Lucy, while obviously distraught, wasn't completely surprised by the news from England. In a way, she'd been fearing it for a while. Is there anyone else I should contact? asked Glenn. Are his parents still alive? Both Aileen and Lance had passed away in the last few years. Lance had gone first, the stress of the job having helped to induce a stroke. People said Aileen had died of a broken heart, and in a sense that was true. She'd gradually gone downhill, but the official cause of death had been some form of cancer. She too had overindulged in the greasy food, but Lance's sons had inherited the business and it continued to thrive. Lucy was comforted by Ramona Cullis, her friend and duty manager at Yard Dog that day. Lucy headed straight home to investigate flights, and Ramona couldn't resist going online to break the news on Facebook and Twitter. Within hours, the whole of Austin, and indeed the whole wild, wild Americana community, was digesting the tragic news. Corey Zander was dead, circumstances unknown. Specialist websites such as No Depression, Maverick, and Americana UK posted updates. A hastily created Facebook tribute page received hundreds of hits, with Austin luminaries such as Ian McLagan, Slade Cleves, and Bob Schneider posting messages of sympathy. For once, money was not the top issue for Lucy as she searched for flights. Frugality had been a way of life for her and her dad for decades, but the priority today was speed. She found a route leaving the following morning which started at Austin's Bergstrom Airport, connected in Chicago and Paris 
and terminated at Southampton Airport, which Glenn has said was the closest to Winchester. Lucy clicked a book, inserted her credit card details and started to pack. In Winchester, one forensics team was minutely examining the car park at the station, while another was analysing Corey Zander's clothes. Either of these could produce vital clues as to the identity of Corey's killer, and gradually what they found was being filtered back to Robin Bird at North Walls. In the meantime, D.S. Jackson and a couple of other officers were assigned to track down every person who had been present at the gig and interview each of them. It wasn't a terribly difficult task, as so few people had been there. Still on the little table by the door was the paperwork. The bookworm's list of people they'd sold to, the printouts of the online sales, and the mailing list where Ben had asked walk-up guests to leave their details, so he could add them to a mailing list and inform them about, ha-ha, future gigs. First, Jackson interviewed Andy and Sam from the station in more detail. Both of them had been working the bar that evening so both were well informed. What about this incident with the Mort gang? Well, we'd never have let Barry Mort in under normal circumstances, but he took us by surprise. He isn't interested in music, but it turned out his cousin was in the support band and he invited him along. Ben Walker tried to stop him getting in without paying, but he just barged past. What happened to Mort? He was causing trouble at the gig and Corey Zander attacked him. I don't know where he went after that. He and his mates all just ran away. Mort would have to be paid a visit very soon, thought Jackson. We have reason to believe that Ben Walker might be involved in all this. Was he acting normally? I don't know what normal is to him. He'd never hired the place before. But he was definitely nervous, mainly because he was going to lose a lot of money on the night. Plus, he was freaked when Barry Mort and his mates showed up. Sam intervened, then hesitated. Also, oh, it's not important. What's not important? Well, he was telling me that Corey sent him to Southampton to buy drugs. He was trying to laugh about it, but I think he was nervous. He said he had to deal with some dodgy characters there. Interesting. Jackson made a note. At the same time, a couple of officers were up at Peter Simmons College, where the principal had managed to gather the bookworms, plus all their friends who had attended. They genuinely seemed to have nothing to add, apart from pointing out that they hadn't been paid. All agreed that the bookworms had simply played their set and left, spending the next hour smoking in the beer garden. Nobody had anything negative to say about Barry Morton and his friends. Yes, they'd had a bit to drink, but they'd helped them to take their gear out to the car. They didn't know anything about them barging in without paying. They hadn't put them on the guest list because they didn't have one. And anyway, they'd no idea they were coming. Robin Bird rang Rosie at work. Despite the madness, she'd gone in as usual, but wasn't concentrating. She told the truth, which was that she'd stayed for a while but gone home early with a headache. She berated Bird with the ridiculousness of arresting her fiancé, who had never hurt anyone in a million years. Bird then caught Robert Layton on the phone in his lunch break at school. He'd heard from Rosie about the arrest, and was also amazed and angry that one of his loyal staff was under suspicion. He'd have to draft in a supply teacher, and it was all most inconvenient. Did you witness the incident when Barry Mort was attacked by Xander? I saw it, yes, but I didn't want to get involved, so I left immediately. Where did you go? I went home. I hadn't enjoyed the music anyway because I was only there because Ben wanted me to come. You can't shed any light on all of this. 
I'm afraid I can't. But I'll tell you one thing. There's no chance that Ben would ever be involved in violence, and I can't understand why you've arrested him. I'm sure it must have been all some kind of accident. Robert went on to ask Bird if there was any way that he could exert influence to keep the details of the arrest out of the papers. Bird replied that this was beyond his powers, and when Robert got home that evening and switched on the TV, Sally Taylor of South Today was just reading the main headline. An American rock star has been killed in a shock incident in England's ancient capital. A local primary teacher has been arrested. The report was accompanied by a mugshot of Ben and, oh God, some footage of parents picking up their children from St John's school, with the youngsters' faces pixelated out. This was beyond ridiculous. Back at the venue, Jackson was just leaving when he remembered a final question for Sam the barman. I know what I was going to ask. You said Ben was set to lose a lot of money. Do you know exactly how much? Sam started doing some sums on his iPhone's calculator. OK, well, Corey's fee was £500. Ben had to pay £60 for the sound engineer and £100 to hire the room. Plus, I know he brought him dinner and drove to Heathrow and back. So that's probably about 700 quid in all. The support band brought 10 people, but the tickets were half price. We sold 13 advance tickets at £15 each, and four people paid on the door, so that's a total income of... He tapped. £330. He tapped again. So he was in a hole to the tune of £370. That's a lot. Jackson thanked Sam and drove back down to North Walls to report his findings to Bird. Bird himself had received a wealth of interesting news from the forensics teams and was preparing to interview Ben Walker again. Jackson agreed, despite the fact that he would rather have gone home, to sit in on the session. Mr Walker, we've looked into this case in some detail and we have good reason to believe that you killed Corey Zander on Monday evening. That's crazy! You're basing this on the fact that I had blood on my hands. It's obvious that the blood came from when I was holding his head and trying to resuscitate him. Do you honestly think I got covered with blood while killing him the night before and hadn't washed since? My theory is this. You're an educated man. You know as well as I do that you can scrub up as much as you like, but our forensic guys will still find traces of blood under your fingernails, even when they seem clean. That man was cold. He'd obviously been dead for hours. What was the point of trying to resuscitate him? I know exactly what you were up to. You purposely got blood on your hands to confuse the issue. Ben shook his head. Surely this was the most far-fetched conspiracy theory he had ever heard of. Listen, I quite like Corey. i just found him and my natural instinct was to try and revive him. He walked out of that room and I didn't see him again until I found him behind the container. What possible reason would I have to kill him? even if I was capable of killing anyone. Ah, Bird smiled, as everything continued to fall into place in his mind. I don't believe it was premeditated. I think it just happened. Here's what I think. You followed him into the car park and tried to calm him down. He was in a rage because of what Barry Mort had done to him. He blamed you for getting him such a bad gig where he'd been humiliated. No! Yes! That made you angry, too. You'd lost £370 on the gig, and you told him so. You told him he should be grateful that you'd given him the opportunity. You argued, and this is the bit that's missing. Maybe he turned his back on you, and you picked up the brick and hit him. Or maybe you just pushed him, and he fell and hit his head on it. I couldn't push Corey Zander over if I tried, and I wouldn't want to anyway. We didn't argue, and I certainly didn't kill him. 
You have absolutely no evidence because there isn't any. Ah, but I think you'll find we have. Bird was smiling again. He reached into a folder and pulled out a small polythene evidence bag. Do you recognise this? Ben looked at the item in the bag. It was a small promotional button badge, about two inches across. Emblazoned on it, in green on black, was the Grams logo. Ben had seen that Corey was wearing it on his jacket, a delightful piece of nostalgia to bring back memories of the 80s. Yes, of course, Corey was wearing it. You remember that we fingerprinted you when we took you into custody yesterday? Well, there's a print on that badge that exactly matches yours. Do you have a comment? It was so obvious that Ben didn't hesitate. Of course my fingerprint is on it. He was wearing it on his chest and I was pumping his chest to try and resuscitate him. It's a pretty straightforward explanation. It may be straightforward in your version of events. It's straightforward in my version too. That fingerprint comes from when you were fighting and you pushed him. Ben couldn't think of anything else to say. He turned to his solicitor. What can I do? Jackson intervened. You see, Mr. Walker, we have the impression that you're not quite the respectable citizen you paint yourself as. We've been told by a reliable source that you were hanging around in dodgy parts of Southampton trying to purchase drugs for your American so-called friend. And you admitted himself that you supplied him with whiskey, added Bird. Surely that wasn't going to improve his performance. The lawyer, Mrs. Weston, looked up from the notes. I'm tempted to say it'll never stand up in a court of law, was her comment. The evidence is flimsy, largely irrelevant and circumstantial, and it's unlikely a jury would be convinced by any of it. There's absolutely no reason for you to hold my client in custody, so I'm requesting bail. I'm afraid that's not possible, responded Bird. That's not the only piece of evidence we have. His hands returned to the folder and drew out a colour photograph. It showed something green and it was hard to see at first what it was. Do you know what this is? I'm not sure. I'll tell you. It's the handle of the refuse container in the car park of the station. Can you explain why your fingerprints are on here too? For a second, Ben slumped. He'd always had a bit of a victim complex. Why had he always lost in school sports? Why had his results always just been average? Why had he never been promoted? Why was Robert always telling him off? It felt as if someone had it in for him, but why? All his intentions had been good, but everything had gone wrong. This policeman seemed determined to stitch him up. But why? Then he remembered. Yes. Yes, I can explain. I found some rubbish on the floor of the car park, and I opened the bin to put it in. Bird sighed and looked quizzically at the prisoner. So, there's the dead body of someone you know in the car park, and all you can think about is clearing up litter. You're going to have to do better than that, Mr. Walker. other books are also available in print and Kindle editions. For more information, head to olivergray.com. This audiobook was a DC 10 Tonight production.